Hi everyone and thank you so much for tuning into Grow With Grief, a podcast that aims to make the uncomfortable comfortable and open up the conversations around grief and loss. My name is Katrina and together we will be hearing different stories from different people, how grief has impacted their life and what they've learned from it. And together we will create a community that normalizes the conversations around grief and loss. Hello Becky, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Oh, I'm so excited too. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, So if you could just give um, a bit of an introduction to yourself for anybody that's listening and who you are, how you came to be where you are today and what what you're doing. Sure. So probably first and foremost, I'm here because I created a project called the Death Dialogues Project. Mm -hmm. But I think the bigger picture of that is how death has informed me throughout my life, um, personally, throughout my life. I'm actually writing about this right now, uh, kind of a memoir through the lens of death. So it's very fresh and I won't go into great detail, but you know, it's interesting. When you grow up a certain way, you assume people have had similar experiences when you're younger, right? Mm-hmm. And so for instance, even my husband who's British and a doctor, um, retired now, but was, um, always saying that he'd never even been to a funeral. He'd never even been around death besides clinically at all. And it's like, oh my gosh, those people even exist. What what would life have been like without that? So, um, so it comes, yeah, there's a heavy emphasis of death in me with my upbringing. And then I get, got into nursing so I could pay my way to get into psychology and counsel, you know, psychological counseling. Um, and so with that, I had up close and personal experience clinically and got to see the way that the nursing home setting, clinical settings, hospital settings handled death and was very upset by the depersonalization and the fact that, you know, we weren't really expected to take the time to sit down and hold a hand and comfort. So these were all things that I was filing away as far as future practice that I would do, or if I could ever have a way to slowly implement change, like the situation when I'm I'm floating in the hospital and I'm in the intensive care unit and a patient dies Mm -hmm. and we have um, the nurse having me help her uh, the, the nurse that's always there, you know, and was her, her assigned patient, having me help her take care of the body afterwards. And she's flinging it around as if it's a rag doll, this person. And I just was appalled. And since I was subservient to her, tried to put it in a really nice way of, I know you're super busy. Why don't I just finish that? But just again, filing away, filing away. And, um, and then seeing in the hospital, that mentality that, that, um, you know, people go to med school because they're saving lives. They don't go to med school to watch people die, you know? So there's this whole paradigm set up that death is a failure. Mm. So therefore it's very, very sad to say but in the medical clinical situation, even in hospice kind of situations at times, obviously those are all across the board, lovely, lovely times. But a lot of times the, the um, clinicians, you know, the people that are coming in to, to help with measures, it's just really hard to get away from life sustaining measures and um, look at the possibility of Where is that corner we can turn and really be fluent and supportive about talking about the stage of life that we're all going to have, whether it's suddenly or it's drug out called end of life? And how can we meet each other in that place and have open dialogue about it? So that was all going on. And then as I progressed and I became a licensed um, clinician, psychological mental health clinician, and then was still interfacing with death. So I was interfacing with the aftermaths of young people and people taking 
their lives, ending their own lives. I was faced with running a program where a heavy percentage of that population was in that clinical framework. So I've been at the aftermath and in the middle of a lot of that, but also um, started working with the man that I had no clue would become my husband in the future. (laughs) Being British, being British and being who he was, I guess, but I think it's much more common in Britain to have kind of a holistic team framework. So he put together, his specialty was congestive heart failure, which you could look at as, um, you know, almost like, a, I don't want to say this for people listening. How can I, cause I don't want the heart failure. Isn't that a horrible word anyway? I used to lobby like, why can't we call that something else? But it is a chronic long-term condition sometimes that eventually there are signs, you know, everything else has been exhausted. And it's usually when a person, if they've done, you know, their treatment plan, what they could do and have had good luck with medications. Mm -hmm. And this is sometimes because you also get the very young people that had transplants when they were 25 or whatever, you know, that had other things going on. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a very early end of life, although I worked with so many people that it was, but we started doing a technique because he was pretty effective. He never played like that he had a crystal ball in front of him, but there were warning signs where you could see where he could get a pretty good gauge when there was about six months left um, of life, which was the criteria for a type of therapy, a person, um, a doctor, Harvey Chachnikov up in Canada was doing called dignity therapy. And that, I don't know, have you heard of that before? Um, I've heard a little bit, yeah, not too much. So that's where uh, you really should be a trained therapist sits with the person. And I'm just going to say dying person, you know, that person end end of life person. And there's uh, 10 questions. And I did it verbatim like that because we gave feedback to his study because they'd only done it with cancer patients. And, um, and then you take the information that they've given you, the answers to those questions, got to kind of have a love for writing because then you turn it into a narrative document that is is something that you then read back to them Mm face-to-face, which is actually the very therapeutic event of it, what I found with my interactions with people. So that turned into a different way that I was working with people who were dying. But I have to tell you, you know, my father died when I was 22 in 1983 of a brain aneurysm. Mm -hmm. And he had had that warning that that was going to happen when the brain aneurysm had leaked three years before that. And I had just finished, I was in nursing school at that time. And then I was a nurse when the sudden event happened that they warned would happen. And he was on life support port for a period of time, a day, you know, not even an entire day and night. And um, so I had that kind of tucked away because even though I had a very difficult relationship and childhood with my father, I was blown away by how much grief had its way with me anyway. Right. And so, but he wasn't my go-to person, you know, it wasn't like this was a soulmate. This was like a close death. And, and so I thought I got it. You know, I thought, I thought I had, had won the wings, you know, the grief death wings that it's okay to sit down with people and be with them at their time of loss. You get it. But what I didn't realize until my brother called me and he is my soul connect and we were like best friends. He was, he's my youngest brother who's seven years older than me. And he called me complaining about his memory and wanting to process that. And that was the last lucid phone call I had from him. Um, For six months, they diagnosed him with primary CNS, no, with um, an encephalitis, autoimmune encephalitis, because they couldn't find definitively a place like to biopsy in his brain or whatever. And until six months later, and then they were able to do that. And it was primary CNS lymphoma, a type of brain cancer. And I was fortunate enough because of what was going on with my husband and his retirement that my mother had moved here and he could be with her and my son, our son. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time with my brother, Max, including going back when he took a sudden 
turn at the end, which looked like the end might be there. And all of that experience was very transformative to me. But having learned some lessons in New Zealand about how they do death here, which is um, you have the prerogative to do it very personally. A lot of people keep their loved ones home. And um, so I had immersed in that a little bit here and knew about that a little bit. And my brother, I knew would be totally down with that just because I just, you know, knew he was loved the old, old school ways of doing things. And, um, and so I just kind of planted the seed with my sister-in-law that if, if he died before I got there, just to remember, you don't have to, it's not an emergency to immediately call somebody about and some of the most precious time could just be with him and um and you know enjoy that intimacy with nobody involved and then call when you're ready well I hope I I haven't really asked her later but I'm sure that probably planted a seed but long story short and you I've written about it and I'm writing about it but we actually kept him home we took care of him totally and we kept him home for three days and did a home vigil with our loved ones around and there was music and singing and sitting by him and cooking going on in the other room and laughter as people are going through the pictures. And it was a transformative experience. And so we were- I find it in, sorry, in, from my experiences, it's also rushed usually, you know, the moment that it happens, you then have to call the funeral director. You have to, the, the body gets taken away. And then, you know, in, in a lot of, modern society or in in, in in England at least um there is that sense of it has to kind of be done really really fast and you don't get that time to to just sit with it and, and be and we have been programmed that that's the way it goes down we've been programmed that okay we are no longer in charge of what's going on we have got to call the authorities and we have got to follow their instructions mm-hmm. they then are telling us what's going to happen and i want to clarify here it's really important as people listen to this conversation to understand i have absolutely no judgment if that's what a person wants to do you know not everybody wants that intimate involvement but a lot of people after they hear these stories and even know it can be an option or if they've seen an experience like we had or like, whoa, you know, I had no clue that that could even be an option. I'm going to look more into that. So that was a very, very profound experience, life-changing experience, horrible gut-wrenching, beauty, magic, expansiveness, Mm -hmm. all of that. And we were just so fortunate that this was in Michigan that um, I'd asked this hospice social worker, hospice wasn't even involved with us for a week. It was, that turn was that sudden. But um, I asked, could you just tell me which funeral home you think might be the most open to some alternative practice? And that's all, that's as far as we'd gotten. But when I called that funeral home, I got the director and he was so supportive and said, I know that this is an, a trend that's going to be happening. I know um, we've never had a body not be embalmed and we've never had anybody keep anybody home. I want to support you in any way possible. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, here's some recommendations. Here's where you need to place the ice on the body and change it about this often. And um, these are the, these are the things that are going to happen. It should be fine. It was winter, you know, keep a door, window open if you're really wondering if it gets too hot And he said, you can keep him home as long as you want to up until the funeral, if you want to, which was going to be in their little country church. He said, all I'm telling you that you need to know is that you call us when it's time and we will be there within a half an hour. He said, if it's one o'clock in the morning, if it's three o'clock in the morning, and I have never before in an interview kind of gone over this that painstakingly, but in case there's any funeral people, you know, mortuary kind of people in the industry out there. I believe this is the trend that we need to, to start having happen white, more widespread. So people understand um, that, 
you know, even the, the sciences, the mortuary sciences, they see that there's alternatives and they're there to support you through that. It was a, such a gift, such a gift. So then interestingly, I get back to New Zealand. My mother is in her mid nineties, has been living with us and she announces, I want you to do exactly with me what you did with Max, but I don't want to, I don't want my body to darken the door of a funeral home. <laughs> so she was a little, she was raised in the depression and she had always told me about the story. She was the youngest in her family, born in 1922. So she had seen a lot of hardship, a lot of pain. She'd also seen a lot of those old family traditions mm -hmm. about births in the home and deaths in the home. And so she um, loved that idea. She absolutely thought that's the way it should be. And that the you know, she had strong feelings about the funeral home industry and the money involved. Mm -hmm. And we up here on this hill in New Zealand, the one day she announced to me, this is it. I'm ready to die. I'm gonna be dying now. And I sat vigil with her for 24 hours she recorded a goodbye video to our family that ends with three blown kisses and a wave with her little Southern accent. Bye-bye. And she got down to the work. I mean, she was a testimony to the, to the fact that sometimes people just decide yeah. when it's time. And um, yeah, 24 hours later, she, she had left her feet left the planet, so to speak. And we got down to business here and I held the vigil and, you know, prepared her body. And we had, it was a real learning curve. We had to dance around. She'd finally decided to be cremated um, because I think with her body being over here in New Zealand and her family in the United States, that's what convinced her. And, you know, there's always the business and the paperwork, but there's also advocates out there to help with that. Now I digress. So back in the middle of that, at some point I was planning, thinking I was going to stage the vagina monologues for V-Day, which supports um, and is activism against violence against women and children. And my brother, Max, who had died, had like baptized me into activism. Not that I was a wild activist, but I did a lot of things with him. He, yeah. he actually, you know, was in charge of voting campaigns and things like that or um, people being elected and just different issues. And I really felt like he whispered in my ear that we need to do this about death because you probably know the vagina monologues is based on 200 real interviews about women and their bodies. Yeah. And from that, Eve Insler created a verbatim piece of theater. That was my first initial thing I thought I would do is do the interviews and then do a verbatim piece of theater. Mm -hmm. And I did do a couple production type of things on stages, which people were very, very moved by. But I also had people saying, you need to have a podcast, you need to have a podcast. And after that started, it just the time effectiveness of it, and the the ability to get these stories out to so much more people, so many more people made so much sense. Yeah. And so that's where I'm at. And I think that's why you have me here. If I'm yeah. Not <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I think your story is really interesting. And it's definitely um, something that I've not really heard much about before, whether because people haven't wanted to share because it isn't seen as the norm, or whether it just isn't seen to happen as much. And I think that it's really incredible. I think the for your mom especially to have had that opportunity to be able to choose and make that choice and that's what she wanted and you were able to to do that and not be forced into you know what we're often told to do when somebody dies I think that's absolutely incredible and um from hearing you speak about it I can hear that you know it helped it helped must have helped you um in your grief and, and in your processing of it as well um I am interested to know you touched on the fact that in your work, in your career, you had a lot of experience around death and end of life care. Do you think in any way that helped prepare you for what you were going to experience in your own grief? Um, I think grief is always a moving target, to be honest with you. 
I just don't think we can absolutely know how it's going to have our, its way with us until it does. But what I can share with you is, and, and I call myself a therapist gone rogue now because I feel like all of this work is very therapeutic in its own way. And of course, with this project and having that background, we, I do have people that I'm interfacing with about grief as well. Mm -hmm. Although I'm kind of in the activist mode about getting the conversations about death out of the closet, period, right? But then also understanding about choices. So with, um, with my situation, I can tell you my experience had an immense help with my, my uh, work experience greatly enabled me to be present with my brother's experience throughout his illness and advocate and caretake. I mean, I would go over there when he was in the hospital and I stayed at his bedside 24 seven. I didn't leave until he got much better because he almost died when they did the brain biopsy. They had to, had to take him off all of the medicines they had him on. And it ended up that those medications were actually lower doses of what his chemotherapy would be. So what had happened is those doses they were giving him for what they thought was the encephalitis had just kind of kept his head above the water. So he had to have 15 days with those medicines being weaned out before they could do the brain di biopsy. And by the time I got there, he was almost comatose. He, it just, it was like the energy was leaving his body. So we started from scratch. And just to give you an idea, the oncologist's words were, I think he's going to wake up. I think as soon as, once they got the diagnosis and we're gonna start treatment, of, I think he'll wake up. So that's how, how incapacitated he was. And that's when I was by his side because he was that incapacitated. And as he got better, you know, I would stay down at the family accommodations when he was moved to the rehab hospital and that kind of thing. So in those ways and knowing what I knew because I wasn't afraid of death and I was immersed in those conversations, knowing what I could do. Yeah. All of that experience has helped me so much. What I believe, and I hear every day, and I have just heard in the past two days, some really profound stories of what happens when people do not talk about death and are afraid of death and never address it. I know that that has a devastating effect on can have a devastating effect on the grief process. Yeah. So one of the things I know for sure is it's pretty universal that when we grieve, part of that aspect is regrets. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can have done, you could have been, you know, the quote unquote, you know, best support person done everything, but there's still going to be, Oh, I wish I would have done this. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, I wish I would have done that. And the one thing about increasing the communication about death, surrounding death with your person, with your loved ones, and I say throughout your family, whatever age they are, because as we know, um, as Kate Manser with her program, you might die tomorrow, you might die tomorrow, you know, it's, we're not guaranteed that it's going to be, a, we're going to get a warning. So it, the more literate we become, and the more we know, say as the person, if it was me dying, the more I have had been able to have open conversations facilitated, my loved ones know what I want. Um, there's no guessing games. They know where my last wishes are. They know where my will is. They know what my wishes are as far as, um, you know, living will type of things. That is an act of total love for the survivors. And when we're not having those conversations and we still have that taboo, and this happens with highly trained and highly professional people as well, don't leave any breadcrumbs. It can just, oh, it just can devastate the grieving process for people because, you know, you know, grief brain. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. add on that, that you have to go searching for information or whatever that is that, you know, it's just not clear. These things aren't clear to me. So, yeah, I would say greatly those kind of things have helped my grief process. Now I will tell you, I never in my wildest dreams 
could have imagined the intensity of my grief with my brother and with my mother, primarily first, because he was first with my brother who, and I'm so glad, you know, one of the things my, my kids would say, what do I say to him? I said, and I would say, you say everything that you want him to know about what kind of uncle he was to you, what he meant to you. And so I was so thrilled that I had been able to do that. Max, thank you so much for rescuing me when I was 19 and getting me, you know, there was one time because at times he was just in the moment with a brain cancer. And I said, Max, you know, you were the best brother anybody could be. Well, I sure hope I was. I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't do anything mean, you know, and it was like, I just wanted him to constantly be surrounded by love. So in my grief, I go back to that, right? And I, and it doesn't make it better as in it doesn't make it right. He needs to be, you know, I'd love to have him on the planet, but I know he left in love. Yeah. And so that eases my grief, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, it flattened me. It really flattened me. And then the insult of having my mother when those two people being the biggest cheerleaders of my life and us being in the trenches in a not so great family environment together and processing together, which adds in a dimension. Um, Yeah, I didn't realize it till certain times, just how dramatic that was. So even with my therapeutic background, with the experience I had, I couldn't have written you an essay before about what, how grief was going to have its way with me. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, my middle brother was found dead in October of this past year. And I have to say, because what I'm doing now, because of this project and because of losing my you know, my right arm kind of people, mm-hmm. my heart people, as I am living in a way I call full spectrum living, I am willing to look everything in the face, the good, the bad, the ugly, the heart wrenching, processing it as painful as it can be. And as low as I can go in the trenches sometimes for days at a time, you know, working through the emotions that come up. But I really, really believe that because of that, my grieving experience with him, we weren't as bonded. We didn't have as much of a, um, we were very connected again because of our background, but there was a different type of relationship there. But I just had a more space of fly free, fly free and, you know, feeling, um, feeling a sort of release with him. And I have to think that the ease and that grieving process that I have is because of not being afraid of these conversations and doing the work and deep dives into grief that I've done. Um, That doesn't mean that it's not gonna totally disrail me again in my life. I dread it happening. But I also probably in this, you know, so that was 2017 in January when my brother died, the first brother died. So this long along the path, this far along the pathways, I just feel like with this project, you know, it's my project. I'm going to do what I want to with it. (laughs) And, you know, I like that activism, but also what I find very helpful and the people I talk to just seem to get great comfort out of when it comes from grief is looking at the expansiveness and the possibilities of love never dying and how that is for what that means to different people and what that means to me. And as I say, you know, I worship at the feet of the great mystery. I don't, I can't give you an exact, but I know what I feel and I know experiences that I've had. And I know 99% of the people I talk to and interview say that they feel that they've had a connection with their loved one after they've died. I've immersed myself in a lot of books and a lot of readings. And so this coming up uh, podcast round that, as you know, I'm going to batch record. um, I've got a heavy emphasis. I mean, I already have, I've had mediums on, I've had other people, but I've handpicked a lot of death workers and I've handpicked a lot of um, people that are in touch with the beyond. Um, And that's kind of very comforting to me. Hmm. Have you ever, out of interest, have you ever seen a medium? 
Mm, how to mm -hmm. read yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> Earlier, people were pointing me to a, a couple people around here that I saw in person, but I found someone who's in England. He's in uh -huh. Sussex and uh, calls himself a holistic medium as very uh, gentle. And he's actually, I call him uh, the therapist's ther therapist. <laughs> so, for, so for me, you know, like, like he is my self-care kind of connection. So instead of, and I get a therapeutic um, response from my interaction with him. Mm -hmm. He's extremely plugged in. He's been extremely accurate um, with what he says. And it's, and now he knows my family. It's like, he's part of that side of my family. And it's all things that he's, he comes up with that have you know, there's no way that he could understand or know the qualities of this person's personality and that type of thing. And I find that very comfort comforting. And things happen. I've had a lot of things happen, but I was speaking with someone this morning and, you know, it's one of my common things to say. I, I also honor my inner skeptic and I would like to just abolish my inner skeptic, but there's also a part of me that I have, I keep a list, I keep a running list of these little hellos, yeah. I think, or sometimes profound hellos. But I always say, until they come and sit at my table and have a cup of coffee with me, <laughs> you know, there's always that little bit of like, oh, really? But I think that is what I hear over and over and over is for people, if I had a recommendation, like, how do I get that connection? Is stop doubting yourself, stop doubting what's happening. So many times it's, oh, that was just a coincidence or, oh, I didn't really see that, did I? Or it's just start honoring when something happens or a thought pops in your up in your mind and you get the sense that it's something they would have said yeah. or whatever. And, you know, you, we don't have to know exactly, but we can honor that that is a way that they're staying alive for us, these messages. Yeah, if it's real for you, then it's real, and to 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 see it as that, and and yeah, sometimes until you see something right in front of you, it's hard to believe. But um, yeah, no, definitely, I think I've I've recently, only recently, seen a medium for the first time. I was a big big skeptic, and even after seeing it and being told things that I they they would not possibly know ever, you know, I still do have that voice like is it you know but yeah as you say to honor that and it brings comfort so I think that's the most important thing um it probably keeps our feet on the planet yeah a little bit of skepticism right yeah. like okay okay you know but I feel I've had a shift and I really try and I, I I'm not speaking to anybody that's had a recent loss because it's impossible to do probably when you've had a recent loss but I, but with time as time goes by I'm I'm starting to, to find myself when the gut-wrenching pain comes up to um, understand that if there is that connection, that's probably lowering their vibration to see that in me because they care so deeply, their energy cares, whatever's out there, you know, probably cares so deeply. So I'm trying to <clears throat> come up with a kind of a mantra or a visualization of fly free, you know, release, um, you know, imagining that they're actually uh, experience what the ultimate love, the ultimate light, the ultimate connection and allowing them that and honoring that, but that doesn't, I've, I've heard like famous mediums say, um, I can't, I can see the guy's face, but I can't remember. He used to, uh, John Edwards, I think it was John Edwards was saying as much as I absolutely 100% know these things are true. I think his mother died or, or if it wasn't him, it was a famous mediums mother died. And he said, but my heart still breaks. You know, there's times I just miss my mom and um, that, that won't change. You know, there's as the waves of grief of just missing our people. Yeah. Yeah. We're allowed to miss them and also be happy that they're not in pain anymore and know that they're at peace. We're allowed to have both of those feelings. It's not one or the other. It's the whole accumulation of, of emotions that we feel. And um, yeah, I think, what you say about honoring that is is 
is exactly right we just need to honor it and let ourselves feel what we need to feel not be too hard on ourselves and also know that they are you know where they are and they're at peace and they're in light so um what advice would you give to people who are trying to support someone who's grieving because I think quite often I get questions from people saying I don't know what to say I don't know what to do how can I help is it best to just ignore it um and I think really the best advice can come from those who have experienced grief themselves so if you could shed a bit of light on that that would be wonderful yeah well this might sound like a commercial and I don't mean it that way but but one of the things I think is back to the literacy, the grief literacy within the general population, that's part of the reason they're afraid to meet people in that place or shy away from it because we just haven't talked openly about how to do that. And I, I don't have a very big introduction to, to my podcast, but I say in that listening to these stories will make you a better human. And what I mean by that is we don't get the practice. And speaking as a therapist, um, when, and, and the other thing is, is we have, a, it's a human element. I'm sure it's been there since the beginning of time, huge anxiety around death, you know, and I'm sure it's what kept us alive, right? And many people, that's severe, severe fear of death. Other people, it's just the healthy amount that keeps you from walking into traffic, right? There's those spectrums of it, but it can be quite debilitating and it can be, they have the magical thinking sometimes. So if I immerse myself in that, then I'm, you know, there's a curse, you know, I'm going to will it on my family or that type of thing. So to get past um, the distorted thinking surrounding death and start to see um, that as that time as a normal stage in our lives and a normal um, thing that happens to everybody, you know, absolutely. It's hundred percent going to happen to us. It's hundred percent going to happen to our friends and families and actually have the desire. That's the first thing is how can I meet people there? Get show up for these stories on a podcast. What I say is it's super easy, positive. It gets too overwhelming, but because um, exposure therapy is what you do with anxiety and with those things that bring great fear. Fear is the motion under all anxiety, exposure therapy, hearing those stories, listening to your podcast. There's more and more out there now, right? Listening to these stories. Then I'm not, the more I hear it, I'm not going to tense up as much when that conversation comes around. And also what you hear over and over from di different people in different ways is what was helpful for them or what wasn't helpful for them. And so that helps teach you. Obviously, you've got your own personality. I say personally for me, staying power, staying power from the, the, of the people that love me, not um, getting having people bail because it's too uncomfortable. I mean, imagine I'm the death lady now, right? I'm immersed in death. <laughs> I was and, and girl the other day and I was like, is that a good thing? I like it, but I'm not sure how people would see it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah. But um, to, to actually show up and uh, I, I can't say what exactly it is for everybody, but I do believe just knowing that people are there, the willingness just to sit, can we just sit together? Can we just go somewhere and be together? We don't have to talk. You don't have to talk. I'm here if you want to. I just want you to know I'm not going anywhere and I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what the part that we miss out of and is, is actually quite hard because when you're in that acute grief state, you don't know yourself sometimes, but to continue to check in and say, you know, um, how are you doing? I, I say, how's your heart? How's your heart doing right now? And um, allow them to open up to that. And if they can't say that, you know, that's okay too. You don't have to open up, but I am here and I'm just going to continue to be here now. I have a big issue. I'm going to be really transparent with you. There can be waves of times in this death positive-ish, you know, wave that you and I are involved in. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's a lot of rants about 
the horrible things that people say. And I take a different stance to that. I think if somebody's trying to open their mouth and talk, that we need to remember that we're all the walking wounded. And we are, in general, a population that is so inept when it comes to conversations around death. And I do believe that a lot of times that going, banging on and on and on about how effing stupid somebody's been with their responsibility is a projection. So I have difficult emotions right now. This is overpowering my grief. If I turn that switch and turn it into anger, that gives me a little bit of a break from my grief. Mm -hmm. So I encourage people to not expect perfection and to, when somebody's reaching out, it is okay to say, you know, it would be more helpful or can you please not say that? And this is why I know you're trying your best, you know, and I know there'll be people come back. Well, that's the time that you shouldn't be having to take care of other people. It's not about taking care of other people. It's just about being a good human. And it's about practicing compassion just because, you know, I've had an onslaught of deaths. My brother, my mom, two months later, my father-in-law, six months later, my mother-in-law, and then now my brother. And people have it much worse than that, you know, throw children in there or whatever. There is, there's never a time for some people where they get a break from it, Mm -hmm. where they get a break from loss and traumatic loss and grief. And um, we can't use that. You know, we don't have to be a Pollyanna. We don't have to feel like we have to be the, the billboard for compassion when we've had that much pain. But most of us, most of us just want to walk around and, and be an okay human. Now I know there's a lot of pathology out there and there's a, but those usually aren't the people that are listening mm-hmm. to our work. You, you and my, you know, most people that are tuning into us are wanting, they're wanting to do better for lack of a better term. They're wanting to understand better. They're wanting um, some consolation about how they're feeling. Most people say early on, more than anything, what they've done. They don't want the book that's kind of the clinical evaluation of grief. They want to hear other people's stories that have yeah. been through something similar. That's just what I hear over and over and over again. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it but... does. And I think you've touched on a really important thing there, which I think we could probably talk about for another hour, <laughs> which is, um, and I completely agree that you know, it's okay to highlight the things that people may have said that hurt us or that we didn't feel were helpful so that people know maybe not to say them again or know that, um, use them as guides, but also not to place that blame because once we were that person that hadn't experienced grief, that didn't know what to say. And even now having experienced grief, sometimes I still don't know what to say. Sometimes I I say the wrong thing, but it's acknowledging that they're trying and, it's, you know, as you say, it's being a good human, but I think it's also taking care of yourself. You're not taking care of them. You're taking care of yourself because you're letting them know, you know, that's not helpful for me. Please don't say it. And that helps you. So I think that's a really good thing that you've um, mentioned there. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you. I know, I know there's a lot of different schools of thought, but that's my guiding force really is that again, people showing up, and whatever way that looks tells me they're trying to show up. Yeah. That's just the simple math of it, right? That's the simple equation. <laughs> if they're if they're showing up in whatever way, be it awkward, be it a trite card, they're trying to show up. And if they're staying and sticking around, I know there's a lot of concerns that people have. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people whose partners have died Mm -hmm. and how that dynamic shifts for them of people forgetting, you know, like slowly they're taken off the invitation list Mm -hmm. from some of the things, you know, this whole restructuring. And I think you could say that for a variety of types, like with children, parents, Mm -hmm. that type of thing as well, the you know, the play dates and mm-hmm. <clears throat> that kind of thing. And I, that's where I, what I mean when I say keep showing up. Um, Cause that's loss on loss. And I've had it. I've had that. I've had that. I know I'm too intense and I know th- this loss is too intense. 
And I also try to have some compassion. Mm. Like I have somebody really, really close to me that that happened with really close to me. And I, and I try to see it in a compassionate way, this, and understand that this brings up stuff for them. Yeah. You know, my grief, my deaths, my loss, it, it can bring up things for other people that, and I, I'm at the point in my life, I can't do other people's work for them. I just know that really loud and clear. And there was a day being a therapist and, you know, I would have people contacting me, but just like my husband would have people contacting him about his heart, you know, and, and I just, grief has shattered me. It's exhausted me. It's laid me flat. I can do this that I'm doing with the death dialogues project, but when it gets down to, I'm not going to go try to rescue a relationship where I've got to be the therapist in the relationship. It's just not my work to do, but I'm here. I'm here if people want to come back or, you know, but that's where I say the staying power, maybe this it's awkward staying, you know, but if people can tolerate us through those difficult times, that means a lot to me. I don't know about you. Yeah. I think that shows a lot of love. I think it does Yeah, to stay through all of those times. Thank you. Um, I guess one final question then before we um, wrap up is what has been your biggest lesson from grief? What have you learned about yourself and about the world? Oh, that's, that's the book probably itself, right? Yeah. But yeah, I think that, I think how much it's really all about love and you know, we romanticize love within our societies and think of love in certain ways. But I think for me, it's defined love on a continuum that is an energetic force that knows no boundaries, be it life, be it death. Um, and it's taught me to quiet myself and sit and listen and feel and be with those deep emotions and connect that, you know, breathe in love from my people that have gone before me, mm. breathe out love to them and breathe in. And I, you know, I'm not preaching that to other people that that's real. It's real for me. And it's um, just the ever, and it's made me love more intensely. It's made me love so much more intensely. It's just the love was always there, but recognizing it for the energetic power it is in my relationships and my core relationships has been life altering for me. Mm. And I tell you what, and I'm sure you're probably finding it too. I am meeting my soul connects with this project. This project is as selfish as it is anything. I was just on an hour long conversation with one of my previous people that we met through death and we met through the interview and mm -hmm. the emails that we had before. And, and I have got, I, I could do you a list of these people that I feel like you're from my soul pod. Yeah. We came from the same ship, <laughs> you know, we, we connect at this level that we can heart to heart connect about these things. And that's been a huge, huge lesson to me. Yeah. Amazing. I love that. I definitely can resonate with that. Definitely meet so many incredible mm -hmm. people that you don't have to explain to. They just, get it um thank you so much it's been absolutely incredible and I definitely could have spoken to you for another hour or two <laughs> uh, we might have to get you back on um at a later date but thank you so much I really appreciate it I'll pop all of your details in the show notes so people can connect with you and if you've got any final words before you say goodbye then feel free to say them now <laughs> yeah no I'm just really really grateful to be here with you. I am so grateful. If, if you can't tell from our voices, there's a generation at least between us. <laughs> and beautiful, even just in the last couple few years that I've been doing this, this ever increasing wave of death literacy that's happening. And I'll just call it that for lack of a better term, because we have the death workers out there now, and they're doing profound work, they're profound teaching. We have grief literacy people out there that are sharing their own stories. And that the deep core of it to me, that I can say this from a person who's been to school for these things and has read the texts for these things, there is nothing that will affect 
positive change in our lives and a deeper type of living than hearing and engaging deeply with other stories. Mm -hmm. And so I just encourage people to do that. I encourage people to find a way to, I don't want to say befriend death because it's not, I don't want to make it a magical thing. Eh? You know, it's not about, um, since, you know, pouring glitter over it. Yeah. It's, it's just about, um, not hiding from it. Yeah. So that's what I would recommend to people, whatever ways they can. And to get in touch with people like you or me, if you want to be pointed, because I know we both have a list yay long of, of resources that we could point people to as well, or go to our, go to our websites, go to our projects, and you'll, you'll go through there and you'll see some of that interaction with other programs and other people. There's something for everybody out there if you want to expand yeah. in that death world, eh? Mm. thank you so much thank you and thank you. <laughs> Bye. and and if you're listening you'll be hearing her katrina talk with me on yes. my podcast as well it's going to be a little while but i can't wait for that interview so yeah thank and you. I'll Full with everybody. <laughs> awesome you thank take good you. Bye. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. I invite you to also come and be a part of the community by connecting with us on Instagram at Grow With Grief. Before we go, I want to take the time to thank you. Thank you for tuning in and being part of a community that opens conversation, raises awareness and brings individual perspectives and stories to the forefront of a topic that is often avoided and treated as uncomfortable. The conversations that we have may sometimes bring your own emotions, memories and triggers to the surface and I want to encourage you to know that you are not alone. If you or anyone you care for is in need of support, please reach out to your local support line or if you are in Australia, you can contact Griefline by phone on 1300 845 745 who are available from midday to 3am every day.